This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I urge you to turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Um, scholars have long recognized the centrality of Exodus 19. Terence Fredheim contends that these verses serve as the hub of the entire book of Exodus. And he says the rest of the book really needs to be approached from, the, from this reference point of Exodus 19. William Dumbrell goes even further. He says, a correct understanding of these verses, which summon Israel to its vocation, is vital. The history of Israel from this point on is in reality merely a commentary upon the degree of fidelity with which Israel adhered to this Sinai-given vocation. So in other words, the rest of the story after Exodus 19 is documenting to what degree Israel maintained its faithfulness to the vocation entrusted to them in this passage, which is why last week, when we looked at the golden calf, why that's such a catastrophe. Maybe the best way to see these verses that we're going to look at today is to say that they are Israel's mission statement. This is what the people of Israel were to be about. So if these verses are as big as that, then we would expect something else to come out of this. And what's that? The gospel itself. The gospel itself. At Alliance Bible Church, we want to be a gospel-centric church, not because it's in vogue, but because the Bible is ultimately a single story. A single story about what God has done in Christ to redeem and reconcile people to himself. So these verses that we're going to look at today are a portrait of gospel life. Or to put it differently, these verses show us what it means to be a Christian. So as we get into it this morning, I want to put two questions in your head before we proceed through this. Think about these two questions as we unpack the text. The two questions are this, are you a Christian? And if so, what makes you a Christian? And how would you respond to those questions? Are you a Christian? If so, what makes you a Christian? Let me read Exodus 19. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we're going to look today at two features to a portrait of a gospel life, two facets to what it means to be a Christian. Okay, here they are. Two facets of what it means to be a Christian is that we're saved by grace and we're saved to holiness. Saved by grace, saved to holiness. Holiness. Let's look at each of these. First, we're saved by grace. Just a little bit of context here. Israel has crossed the Red Sea. They have been 
journeying through the wilderness until this point in the story when they come to the base of Mount Sinai. There is a transition here from movement to staying put. They will stay put at the base of Sinai for the better part of a year. Moses goes up the mountain, and God speaks and tells Moses what message he wants him to deliver to the people of Israel. And the message, in part, is this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, it might seem like benign backfiller, but what God is saying here is significant. I could imagine maybe a snarky Israelite responding to this saying, well, God... Technically, isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? You carried us out. We had to walk and sometimes run. And this was not a graceful flight through the air with wind beneath our wings. We had to endure the stress of a pursuing military, walking through the Red Sea, staring at an intimidating wall of water. Maybe it's not fair, God, to say that you carried us out. Maybe a snarky Israelite here or there might have thought that. What's so incredible about this verse, though, is that this is God's interpretation of what really happened. This is God's interpretation of what really happened. In other words, it's the definitive interpretation of what happened. And in God's interpretation of the the Exodus event, how active was Israel? Not at all. God brought judgment down on the Egyptians. God parted the Red Sea. God freed them. God redeemed them. God saved them. Now, to this point in the story, Israel has not been given a law to obey. There are no Ten Commandments. In other words, Israel hasn't lifted a finger to merit the salvation they've experienced. The law is still forthcoming. But getting the order right is critically important to understanding biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is salvation by grace first, then obedience. This is radical. It's completely unique among world religions. All the major world religions agree on a couple of things. First, they all acknowledge that life is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a problem. Second, they all offer some kind of ideal world or life. But that's where the similarities end. Whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, they all have a motto that says, I live right, I do right, then I get accepted and blessed. You know where else we find that motto? Inside every human heart. Inside every human heart lies the motto, If I live right and I do right, then I'll get accepted and blessed. It's the default motto of every human heart. You evaluate yourself this way. You judge others this way. You author your own law that exists within your own consciousness, and when others abide by it, you bless them. But when they fail, you curse them. It's the default position of every human heart. Now, along comes the gospel. Even here in the Old Testament, along comes the gospel and flips everything around. God comes to Israel and says, I have fully saved you. I have fully accepted you. I have fully blessed you. Now obey. Because the order is salvation first, then obedience, we learn something about the law, don't we? We learn that one of the purposes of the law can't be 
to get you to heaven. It can't be to get God to love you or to bless you. That's not the purpose of the law. God redeems us, saves us, blesses us before there is ever a law. Listen, some of you are struggling to get this order correct. You think your salvation hinges on putting together a moral performance that will get God to give you the thumbs up. It's backwards, it's upside down. And you know what the result of that is? When you get the order wrong, you know what the result is? You lay your head on the pillow each night and you're a mess inside because you don't know if you've been good enough. You're plagued by fear, you're plagued by insecurity because deep down you don't know where you stand with God. Why? Because you have the order wrong. The order is not, I do right, live right, then God saves me and blesses me. That's not the order. It's salvation by grace first, then obedience. Here's a suggestion. If you're not sure if you have the order right, stop, take a deep breath, talk to God, and pray this verse back to him. Say to him, God, carry me on eagle's wings. Carry me on eagle's wings to yourself. Free me, redeem me, save me. If you've already done that, don't move past it. Continue to live in it. The Exodus event is something the biblical writers revisit dozens of times in both the Old and New Testament. You never get past the gospel. Christian, you never get past the gospel. First feature of a gospel life, the first facet to what it means to be a Christian is that we're saved by grace. Second, we're saved to holiness. I want to hit this again. It's salvation first, then obedience. Salvation first, then holiness. But when God saves us by grace, he saves us to holiness. Let's look at the verses again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So in addition to being Israel's mission statement, these verses also serve as the preface to the Ten Commandments. God is going to give Israel the Ten in the next chapter, Exodus 20. These verses are setting it up. They're teeing it up. Preface to them. And together, they're showing us the role the law will have in Israel's collective life. This is important. There are three terms God uses to describe what kind of effect the law is designed to have in their lives. Three terms. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Peter picks this up in the New Testament again. So this is not just an old covenant thing. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Three effects the law is designed to have in this redeemed people's collective experience. The first is treasured possession. So the first effect of the Ten Commandments the law are to have in Israel's life is to make them God's treasured possession. This is a very interesting term. It refers to a king's personal treasure. And we need to understand the term against the backdrop of the absolutist monarchies of Israel's day. 
In those monarchies, the king was the theoretical owner of everything in the kingdom. He was the theoretical owner of everything in the kingdom. And with this to- within this total ownership, he might gather and lay aside things that he specially prized in a unique way. This was his choice, personal treasure. Look at within the context. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now these two phrases, among all peoples, for all the earth, intensifies the value of this treasured possession, okay? The sense of it is this. This is not a God who is desperate to have some friends or who likes us because he needs us. He has everything. He has the Grand Canyon. He's got Mount Everest. He's got the Caribbean Sea. He's got volcanoes, oceans, and beaches. He's got it all. He needs nothing. But of all that God has, he looks at his people and he says, you, you, out of everything, you are my treasured possession. Obedience, holiness, is meant to be a response to salvation. God doesn't wait until Israel reaches a certain degree of holiness before he saves them from from the Egyptians. He saves them first, salvation first, then obedience. But obedience and holiness are also meant to form us into God's treasured possession. I think there's something to be said here. For the role of holiness... Um, and obedience in us experiencing God as if we really are his treasured possession. Even though we're saved by grace, as Christians, we get stuck. We get stuck in sinful habits. Oftentimes they're subtle and even undetectable. And when that happens, we may not experience God as if we really are his treasured possession. Pastoral counseling cases, when someone comes to me and, and, and essentially they're describing in their lives they're in a state of spiritual lethargy, spiritual dryness. One of the many questions I ask them is, are you stuck in any kind of habitual sin? Because of this text. When we get stuck in habitual sin, it may not be that we're experiencing God as if we are his treasured possession. It's the role holiness and obedience play in our lives. Thomas Goodwin maybe illustrated this better than anybody. He's a 17th century Puritan. He wrote that one day he saw a father and a son walking along the street. Suddenly, the father swept the son up into his arms, and he hugged him, kissed him. He told the boy that he loved him, and then after a minute, he put the boy back down. Was the little boy more of a son in the father's arms than he was down on the street? Objectively and legally, there was no difference. But subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. God gave Israel the law so that they would experience their treasured possessionship. 
living holy lives in response to God's gracious salvation helps us experience our treasured possessionship. That's the first descriptor. Second, kingdom of priests. Gets a little bit academic. Track with me here. Israel as a whole, kingdom of priests, Israel as a whole was to serve a priestly function similar to the priests, the individual priests in the tabernacle. The priests in the tabernacle represented the Lord. Aaron, who was the chief priest, had garments that were made of the very same material as the curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, that's where God's presence descended. Aaron's garments were made of the same material of the curtain as the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. This suggests that Aaron represented the Lord's presence. He projected God to the people. The word glory is used in Exodus only of the Lord with the significant exception of Aaron's garments. So in this sense, Aaron bore God's glory to the people. They themselves could not go into the most holy place to witness God's glory, but they could see Aaron and they could witness his glory there. So the individual priest displayed God's glory to the people. He represented God to the people. The individual priests also represented Israel to God. Aaron's ephod carried stones representing the tribes of Israel. When Aaron stood before God, Israel stood before God. When Aaron presented the blood of the sacrifice, which secured forgiveness, Israel presented it and benefited from it. So the priests not only represented God to Israel, but represented Israel to God. So here you have this term where Israel as an entire nation is to be a priestly kingdom. What does that mean? It created the possibility of relationship. Israel represented God to the world, to the nations. And they represented the world, the nations, to God. In other words, the idea here is that Israel, is, as a king, Israel being a kingdom of priests is very much outreach, missions, evangelism, and prayer-minded. In representing God to the nations, they were to make God known to the nations. Remember, Exodus begins with an apparent universal ignorance of God. The theme of the book of Exodus could be the God who makes himself known. In representing the nations to God, Israel is to bring the nations before God in remembrance and intercessory prayer. This means this priestly function Israel was to play as a nation, as a collective whole, is very outward focused. Some other time, I will trace the Great Commission theme from beginning to end in the Bible. Great Commission, Matthew 28, it's not the first time it appears. It actually appears in Genesis 1. And you see it pop up again and again and again from beginning to end. And this is one place. He wants his people, his collective people, to be mission-minded, making God known to the nations. He wants his people to be intercessory prayer-minded, intercessing for the nations. Third term is holy nation. In the book of Exodus, the word holy is most often used in connection with God, but here God says one of the purposes of the law in obedience to it is to make Israel a holy nation. That is, Israel was to reflect God's distinctive character to each other in the world. So as the preface to the Ten Commandments, then we can see that the Ten Commandments were given to mold Israel into a radically new community. A community the likes of which the world had not seen. 
So if the 10 commandments were to mold Israel into a holy nation, a radically new community, one aspect we see to this radically new community is that they are a God-focused, God-centric, God-loving community. First four of the 10 commandments focus on a vertical relationship with God. We'll go into that another time. But the second aspect is that we, for to a holy nation is that this radically new community demonstrates beauty in their relationships with each other. The final six commandments are all about love for neighbor. Jesus reiterates this numerous times. One place is in John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. You So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Notice Jesus doesn't say it. Everyone will know we're his disciples by our doctrine. Everyone will know we are Christians by our love for one another, by the beauty of our church community. Jesus picks up this theme again in John 17 and talks about the evangelistic power of a gospel-beautified community. The way in which we treat each other in the church is evangelistically influential. Gina Welch wrote a book several years ago entitled, In the Land of Believers, An Outsider's Extraordinary Journey into the Heart of the Evangelical Church. Gina describes herself as a secular Jew who was raised by a single mother in Berkeley, California. Her father was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. She received her degree from Yale University and at the age of 10 declared herself to be a, quote, hardened little atheist, end quote. She had a curiosity about Christians and Christianity that led her to doing something most of us would find unethical. She faked becoming a Christian so she could embed herself in a church and study us. Similar to what National Geographic researchers do with a herd of animals. And she carried on this charade for two years. She came forward at an altar call, prayed to receive Christ. She got baptized. She went on missions trips, shared the gospel with kids. All a charade. And then after two years, she wrote a book, a best-selling book about her experience. And quite frankly, it's one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. The observations she makes about the Christian church are startling. One of the lasting impacts her experience in the church had on her in a positive way was the way in which the people treated each other in the church. She wrote this. She said, The God-originated goodness created an ecosystem of trust interdependence, and freedom with favor trading, the likes of which I had never before experienced. Mostly the climate in this ecosystem made living easier. And she goes on to list a bunch of ways in which Christians inside the church she was a part of served each other, loved each other, helped each other. She says that this ecosystem she experienced was completely unique. She never experienced anything like it before. Maybe this is what Jesus was saying. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
How we treat each other in the church is evangelistically powerful. Gina experienced in the church something she had never before experienced outside the church. Can we say that's true of us? Can we say that that's true of us? If people who are far from Christ out in our community come and experience this community of believers, will they say they've experienced something here they have never before experienced out in the world? Will they? God saves us by his grace. And then he gives us his laws, a way for us to experience his treasured possessionship. He saves us by grace and then gives us his law to shape us into an outwardly focused community of people who seek to make him known and intercede on behalf of the nation. He saves us by grace and then he gives us his law to form us into a radically new community of people who reflect God's distinctive character. We are saved by grace and saved to holiness in that order. Let's pray. Gracious God, some of us are still trying to merit salvation by the way in which we live. We're operating under the motto of obedience first, then salvation. God, I pray that your spirit would work in us to get the order right. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your amazing grace is all about. I pray even now that you would save those who have long lived with the order wrong. God, as we see the depths of your love and grace, which rescues us, May our hearts be melted in such a way as to walk in obedience to you. Not as drudgery, but as expression of gratitude for your lavish love and grace. For your renown, we we pray all these things that the name and reputation of Christ may be made much of. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.